And if you start looking at um, the root interface, think of it like a, like a bazaar, a place where lots of trading goes on, um, where plants and microbes meet to trade their, their chemical wares to mutual benefit. It then you have a whole different way of looking at the life within the root zone of plants and what's going on below ground and how that actually helps support a flourishing diversity of life above ground. The Ruminum Podcast is for people who are passionate about farming, gardening, food politics, food security, and the intersections among these topics. At theruminant.ca, you'll find a summary of each episode, as well as book reviews, essays, and photo-based blog posts to stimulate your thinking about food production. I tweet, at ruminantblog, and email from editor at theruminant.ca. All right, time for the show. Hey folks, it's Jordan. So look, I have a terrific conversation lined up for you to listen to for this episode today. But first I gotta get to some housekeeping. Last week I announced that I have a free copy of Verge Permaculture's latest educational offering called The Salatin Semester to give away to one listener. I told you that if you wanted to be eligible, you needed to send me an email to tell me what you thought of the podcast, or share a recent post from the Ruminants Facebook page on your own Facebook page, or leave me a review on iTunes. Well, it turns out that a lot of you are really interested in the package or really want to find out more about Joel Salton. So I had a lot of responses. And I just want to say to those of you that, that wrote me emails, I was really I was really touched by by some of the stuff I read. Um so a lot of you really spent some time to write me an email to tell me what you think of the show. And, and uh, there was some great feedback and some great suggestions. And uh, I just really appreciate those words. Anyway, all of the names of all eligible listeners went into a hat and I pulled one. And the winner is Josh Baker of Rise Over Run Farm in British Columbia. Now, what I didn't tell Josh or any of you ahead of time is that there was actually uh, a bit of a skill testing question portion to the contest. So I actually, I have a clip of, of Josh uh, going through that process. Stop! Win the Salton semester. Must answer me these questions, the... The DVDs. PC. Ask me the questions. Ruminant podcast. No, I'm not afraid. What? Is your name? My name is Josh Baker. What is your quest? To seek the Salton semester. What is your favorite color? Blue. Right, off you go. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That's easy! All right, so Josh, congratulations. And I'll be in touch to give you your promo code to claim your prize. And everyone else, thanks again for your efforts to promote the show and write me emails and tell me what you think of the show and and all the rest. I I really appreciate it. And I'm sorry I didn't have a copy for all of you. But if you want to check out that package, it's at salatinsemester.com. Okay, so one more piece of housekeeping before we get to the main part of the episode. I recently had a voicemail left on my Skype number from a listener you've heard before. His name's Seth. He's at Amistad Farm. And, uh, well, he wanted to, to share this. Hey, Jordan. It's Seth Stallings in Oklahoma. Uh, I just wanted to call, and now that I'm on the phone, my mind just blanked. Uh, but <laughs> my friend Josh uh, built a greenhouse, and uh, he was noting, as I'm sure many do, that if you... Uh, look for parts specifically made for greenhouses it's like really expensive 
uh, often you can go and find something that does the same job uh, that isn't specifically marketed for greenhouses, and it's significantly cheaper. For instance, he made some real uh, down uh, sidewalls on his, his greenhouse, and instead of buying the, uh, this is what I'm blanking on is the name of this, but basically it's like a brush that goes on the inside of the outside of the, the roll-down sidewall and prevents air from coming in on the edges. So instead of buying the, the greenhouse part, he bought uh, two different sized broom heads, you know, the long rectangle ones, and put those on the inside and outside. And they were like $10 each and served the exact same purpose as the greenhouse variety that costs triple that amount. Uh, so anyway, I stole that idea from him to share. But uh, anyway, I would also love to hear a podcast uh, on ideas like that, on, you know, things that uh, maybe were built specifically for greenhouses that people found cheaper from other uh, sources uh, that weren't made specifically for that kind of purpose. Uh, anyway, that's all. Thanks. Bye. Okay. So, Seth, I really wish you hadn't blanked on the specific piece of greenhouse equipment that you're talking about because I tried to find what you're talking about online and I couldn't but I think we all get the idea and I think it's a good suggestion so I'm going to start us off okay so folks Seth is asking for things that can stand in for more expensive things that you use on your farm does that make sense it does to me and when I heard his message I I thought of something right away that I want to share with you One thing I find, uh, well, let's say two things that I find really expensive uh, for the farm are any kind of like tomato trellising clips uh, as well as zip ties. And I I make use of zip ties a lot uh, around the farm, particularly in greenhouses when I'm, you know, holding things together, holding a ridge pole on the top of the hoop house or whatever. And in this case, I'm talking about temporary hoop houses that come up and down every year. Uh, So... I found a product at Home Depot that serves both purposes. It is called seven and a half inch 16 gauge rebar tie. And it comes in a thousand pieces pieces per bundle. And it is 1095 Canadian dollars. These things are terrific. Uh, you can use them to, to trellis tomatoes to whatever your trellising is. Uh, I would warn that the gauge of the wire is fairly thin, so you need to leave plenty of room around the, the stem of the tomato plant, which is really easy because you've got seven inches to deal with. If you go and look these things up, they've got these awesome little loops at the end of each tie, and uh, it just makes it really quick and easy to, to quickly bend these things around to, to trellis plants. As for their function as zip ties, they also work really well. You can uh, you can just use it in place of a zip tie. And the nice thing is, um, so, so this wire really turns around itself really easily. You don't need pliers or anything. And the nice thing is you can then just undo it uh, when you need to. Whereas with my zip ties, I'm often just, um, just cutting them and, and kind of treating them as a disposable. So yeah, I really recommend seven and a half inch, 16 gauge rebar tie for actually serving all sorts of, of, of functions around the farm, but specifically tomato trellising and for in place of zip ties. So Seth, I think that's what you had in mind. Anyone out there got anything else they want to share? A cheaper hardware store version of a, of a tool or part specific for farming that is otherwise much more expensive? We'd love to hear it. Editor at theruminant.ca or uh, yeah, just write me or, or record a, a voice memo and, and email that to me. Thanks, folks. All right, so on to the focus of today's episode. 
So a few months ago, I thought to myself, I wonder if David Montgomery has written anything new recently. David is the author of Dirt, Erosion of Civilizations, and that's a book I read, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, and it's fantastic. It's all about humanity's abuse of its soil resources over, I guess, the millennia, and, uh, and the effect that's had on various civilizations that have come and gone, and what it may mean for our own civilization. Anyway, so just by chance, a few months ago, I looked up to see if David had written any books lately, and it turned out that within the last couple months before that, he had. He has just come out with a book co-written with his wife, Anne Bicklay. Uh, David is a geologist, and Anne is a biologist, and they've written a book called The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health. And folks, it was just an incredible read. I, I was I was just so absorbed in this thing as I got into it. And as the title suggests, it's all about our emerging understanding of the role that, that the microbial world plays in plant health as well as is as in human health. And I think I can just I can leave it at that because we're gonna get into it in the interview. So um, I've been really excited to share this with you. I strongly recommend you pick up this book. It is um really well researched, really thorough, and and for that reason, its thoroughness, I recommend you read it because this interview just isn't going to cut it. Um, But we had a great conversation, and uh, well, I'm going to share that after a word from today's sponsor. Another public service announcement from Brill Cream. Men, beware. Use one dab of Brill Cream. Just a little dab makes your hair look excitingly clean, disturbingly healthy. This man dared to use two dabs. Now he's in trouble. We refuse to be responsible. Brill cream, brill cream, brill cream. Brill cream, a little dab will do you. Brill cream, you look so better there. Brill cream, the gals will offer to you. They'll up to get their fingers in your hair. Anne Bicklay and David Montgomery, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Oh, no worries. It's a pleasure to be here. Hello. Folks, you've, you've written a book called The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health. And the very first line of the book in the introduction, well, I'll just provide this quote. We are living through a scientific revolution as illuminating as the discovery that the Earth orbits the sun. That's, that's quite an introductory sentence. Um, and I'm wondering if you can expand on that. What, what are you specifically, what revolution are you referring to? Well, you know, you, you don't get to live through too many scientific revolutions. Um, I'm a geologist. The last one that happened in my field is really the plate tectonics revolution that happened when I was a toddler. But if you look at the world of microbial science today, the way that we look at the invisible or hidden half of nature, um, you know, fungus, um, bacteria, archaea, that whole part of the world, our perception of it is truly being revolutionized by advances in technology and science over the past few decades, uh, and in particular, by our, us realizing that there's far more microbes that are beneficial to plants, to animals, to people than we had ever really appreciated. There, and there's a whole community ecology to the way these, indivi- these invisible organisms interact that really exert great influences over the parts of nature that, that we know and that Ann and I, as a, as a biologist and a geologist, have studied for our professional lives. So it's, we're really living through a change in how we perceive nature and our place in it. The reason that it's taken us so long to make some of these new insights and for this revolution to get started is, is because of two paradigms that have dominated the life sciences in the last few hundred years. And so I'm wondering if we can talk about those briefly. 
Um, the the first is is a very uh, is is the pathogen obsessed or ad adversarial view of microbial life that that we have taken in the life sciences in the last I'll say couple hundred years or more. Um, and can can you break that down a little bit? Can you talk a bit about that that pathogen focused view of of the microbial world? Um, no, you're you're absolutely right, Jordan. It it for a long time has been the dominant viewpoint. The way in which we've looked at the microbial world is that it's mostly, you know, all about diseases and sickness and illness. And there's a good there's a good reason for that too. And that was because you know in in the book we describe some of these early microbiologists, and in their day, they they made some of the um, first discoveries that could link a single microorganism with some kind of a malady or ailment. And they did this, you know, mostly um, with human diseases. And and so, of course, when you're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, you know, being killed by something like tuberculosis, that can tend to dominate your viewpoint. There's There's no doubt about it. And so that's what we call germ theory. And it's, and the the theory is is pretty simple it's that you can trace a disease to a single microorganism and that um that turned out to work really well in terms of identifying many of the major major human diseases and so it's a little like you know you you make this pretty groundbreaking discovery in some kind of a field and it completely colors how you look at everything about about that field. So it was um, it was the start of micro of medical microbiology um, that that really sort of led to this blanket view that they're all they're all sort of you know bad actors. Um, and it's kind of amazing, you know, that only here we are in 2015, and that it's only been maybe in the last decade or so that the microbiome field has started to really upend um, germ theory as the dominant paradigm for the microbial world. It's not to say that germ theory is bad or it doesn't work or anything, but it is to say that we've missed, um, you know, a good half of the story about the microbial world by by only studying and investigating and appreciating them as in, you know, in their problematic um, forms. Okay, that's one of the, the, the two dominant paradigms of the life sciences, um... That, that that we've covered the 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 other has to it comes from uh, an aspect of evolutionary theory you you explain in the book that there's been a heavy emphasis on the role of of competition at the individual level in driving evolution i suppose uh we've we've largely ignored the role of of symbiosis in in in, in driving evolution or in, in, in the role of symbiosis in 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 ecology in general do i do i have that about right yeah, you know that that is right, and and that that was one of the things that was great, of great interest to me in researching this book is to learn the sort of the the history of thinking behind the ideas um, about how symbiosis played into evolution, and then I think learning about how solidly um, a lot of evidence now points to the rise of higher organisms, you know, fungi, plants, um, um, animals, in terms of the the mergers and symbioses of originally microbial organisms, but then also the way that communities of microbes developed partnerships with both plants and animals that played out over the long term, over geologic time, over evolutionary time. 
um, in ways uh, where you can really point to cooperation among species as having been a very big influence. And you know, for, for many years, for almost a century and a half now, we've, we've looked at evolution dominantly through the lens of sort of, of natural selection and Darwinian competition, uh, which are perfectly fine lenses to look at evolution through, right? There's a reason that that stuff works. Um, but if you think about, uh, in terms of our own lives, the way that like a village of people has different kinds of specialists that cooperate to do different things that allow the ensemble living in that village to do more than if everyone was just living on their own individual homestead. Um, we can think about microbes in a similar context in the way that communities of them can actually do things where the, the waste products from one provide the inputs or the food for another, and you can essentially develop systems in which different groups of microbes are actually benefiting one another, and you can then take that to the next higher level and think about the way that microbes living around the roots of a plant or within the, the say, the gut of a human can actually develop relationships with their host uh, that are of mutual benefit. Um, in the plant world, for example, the plants essentially exuding uh, sugars into the soil that feed particular microbes that take those, those that, that food metabolize it and, and produce waste products or metabolites that the plant finds useful and then takes back up things you know, as, as odd for a microbe to produce as plant growth promoting home hormones. You know, why would a bacterium make a hormone to make plants grow better? Well, not just because they felt like it, but because if they did that, the plant then grows better, pumps more sugar into the soil, you can get more microbes. It's a virtuous circle. And if you look back at the evolution of life on land, the very first fossils that we have of land plants have mycorrhizal fungi intimately associated with the roots. The, the whole process of life colonizing continents had a more cooperative effort or spin to pieces of it than we've traditionally looked at in thinking about evolutionary science. I like the, the village analogy, David, because... Um if I could extend it a little bit, it's, it's not that those individual members of that village, uh, can't, uh, survive on their own, but that, um, over time and working together, you know, arguably they can thrive, uh, in, in, in specializing and, and in, in forming relationships. Um, and, so that, and that's, that's exactly what... right. So folks, before we get into the meat of your book, like in, in more detail, I, I I'd like to talk about, you know, I guess the two catalyzing experiences that motivated you to write the book. Um, and I guess if I have the chronology, right, the first, the first, the first experience was the experience of buying a new house, uh, and being very excited to, to start a garden in that house and realizing you that the soil in your garden was, was very terrible. Uh, do you want to talk about that? You know, we bought this house in North Seattle. Um, and one of the attractions of this house is it had a big lawn right next to the house that looked like it would someday make a good garden. Well, we forgot to do something very uh, important uh, that I'd actually done all around the world to, to, in my geological studies. And we, we didn't dig a soil pit in the yard to actually look at, well, what was the quality of the soil, the dirt that we were buying along with this house? When we, several years later, got to the point where we could start actually implementing Ann's garden plan, and we peeled that hundred-year-old lawn off and found that there were no worms in the ground. There was almost no organic matter. It was basically not sterile, but pretty dead dirt. It was sort of a big surprise, like, oh, how, how are we going to actually turn this stuff into a garden? Um, and Anne really took matters into her own hands by trying to um, restore 
the soil, to build soil on, on our lot by bringing organic matter in. She started bringing back leaves and adding coffee grounds and, and mulching the soil, putting wood chips on the soil, getting a local arborist to you know, drop chipped up trees into our driveway so she could spread them on, on her planting beds. And I just sort of watched this stuff go on for a couple of years and, and was actually busy writing a previous book that I did called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations, about how societies that did not take care of their soil ultimately failed um, when their, their soil gave out. And over the course of about five years or so, um, all of Anne's activity in bringing back organic matter in our yard really started to actually generate changes in the soil that we could notice. Uh, it was getting darker. It was getting browner, more more richer. Life came back to the yard uh, pretty much in the order in which life evolved on Earth, um, starting with microbial life uh, to then um, detritivores that would break up organic matter and arachnids, spiders, and millipedes, um, and then birds and mammals. And it was we started realizing just what was going on in the yard and that she was running this experiment in reverse to what many societies had done to their soils throughout history. She was basically rebuilding soil in far faster than nature could actually do it. The idea that that could happen so quickly was really a revelation um, to us. Uh, you know, nature makes soil and builds fertility very slowly. Um, you can build soil at you know, rates of like you know, a fraction of a millimeter a year. And Anne had built several inches of fairly good soil in, in about half a decade. Uh, that's what really started us into looking into the plant side of this. Um, and, I'll, and where the book really took a major turn was when Anne had a major uh, health issue that got us looking in terms of how do microbes relate to, to human health and the human immune system. Um, and putting those two things together really ended up shaping the ultimate um, framing of the book. Right. So if you don't mind, Anne, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. You were at one point diagnosed with cancer, and, and that kind of sent you on a journey to, I guess, learning, trying to learn as much as you could about about your, your, your cancer. Um, but ultimately, that, that led you to learn a whole bunch about uh, I, I guess ultimately the role of microbes in the body. Could, could you could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, we'd been we'd been you know going along both um, in the garden with with um, restoring our soil. We were cruising along with the writing of this book, and about you know maybe halfway into it. I got a phone call that you never, ever want to get from your doctor, and I learned that I had um, cancer, and it was a, a malignant cancer, and caused, of all things, by a microbe, by a virus in particular, the human papillomavirus, um, and I had cervical cancer. I had a lot of questions, like, where, where, does, where does our health come from, you know, in the first place? We had, we had been aware of the microbiome, that's the name of this, you know, emerging and burgeoning field of biology that is looking at indigenous microbes in um, the human world as well as, you know, the botanical world. But in, in my case, we were aware of it, but once we began to really look into it, it became pretty clear that... Um, that these microbial communities indigenous to our bodies 
had a whole lot more to do with health than anybody had ever thought. If you look at um, sort of human history over the last, say, 100 years or so, a couple hundred years, let's say, most of the premature early deaths were due to some kind of infection. So for most of human history, that's what took us down, were these very specific um, diseases caused by specific microorganisms. And then as, as um, we got clean water, sanitation improved, vaccines came online, antibiotics came online. So by now, around now, we're, you know, around the Second World War. And so deaths greatly, greatly decreased from those causes. But then after the Second World War, as those deaths still kept declining, there were these other kinds of diseases that people seemed to be dying from earlier than they, than they should have. And these are all the so-called chronic diseases. So these are things like type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, various kinds of inflammatory disorders. And so as we looked into the microbiome, it looked like at the root of many of these chronic diseases from what researchers were writing, uh, writing about and studying, it seemed to be that a perturbed and altered microbiome lay at the root of some of these kinds of diseases. And so that, my questions about cancer, about how do you obtain health, how do you keep it, how do you get it back, was all leading in a direction that was actually quite surprising to both of us. We never, we never really realized um, until we got into it just how important the microbiome is for uh, human health. Um, at this point, I'd like to, to read another quote um, from the book. Resurgent agricultural pests, declining soil fertility, crisis-level antibiotic resistance, and life-sapping chronic diseases all seem unrelated until you consider their roots in, in disrupted microbial ecology. And you, later in the book, you go on to talk about the, the striking similarities between plant roots and, and our colons. And, and so now I'd like to delve into that at least a little bit. Um, we'll talk about the, those those similarities uh, between plant roots and, and our colons a little later, but let's just let's just start with 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 plants. Uh, David, I, I'm just wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about what's happening beneath the soil at the plant root and 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 some of these relationships that that plants have evolved with with various microbes uh, over the last you know millions, hundreds of millions, even I guess up over a billion years. Yeah, well, the the thing that really put that in uh, the degree to which those kinds of adaptations between microbial communities living around the plant roots and the in the rhizosphere of the plants um, have shaped um, or that still shape plant health. The thing that drove that home for me was when I learned, um, or when we learned in researching the book, that something like a quarter to a third of the um, of the carbohydrates, the sugars, the plants will photosynthesize actually get pushed out the roots of the plants and into the soil. And, you know, when I first learned about this, I was thinking, you know, what a crazy thing to do. This is, you know, that's, that can't be very terribly efficient. You're just, like, putting all this energy into making these compounds, and then you're just basically pushing them out into the soil. It makes sense, though, when you think that plants would be doing that to feed microbes in the soil that then provide things in return for the plant. 
And so this two-way exchange across plant roots, I'd always thought of plant roots as stuff that, you know, sucked up nutrients out of the soil. That's what I was taught. That's, you know, what it makes sense. We think of, of roots as straws that are drawing things out of the soil. I think, um, I think that's what a lot we, of us assume. And I, and I, I think you even write that early on when, when scientists realized that plants were putting compounds into the soil, there was even an assumption early on that they were just bleeding them out. Like, like just, they were leaking out almost. Isn't that true? Yeah, it was just inefficient, you know, kind of like if we just walked around town handing out money. Um, <laughs> right. Be, you know, it should be a wonderfully altruistic thing to do, but but it's, but um, you know, people weren't really thinking that plants were altruistic. <laughs> um, and so the initial thought was, you know, oh, this is, it's wasteful, it's inefficient. Well, it turns out that it's actually you know, hyper-efficient because what plants have done by doing this is they've essentially outsourced the production of key compounds that facilitate their nutrition, their health, their growth. Um, and, you know, if you look at, say, mycorrhizal fungi um, in the soil that develop intimate relationships with plant roots, some of them even, um, you know, burrow into the, the plant root itself and establish a direct physical connection between the fungus and the plant. And the mycorrhizal fungi can do something that plant roots can't really do themselves terribly well, and that is they can they grow from incredibly long lengths, and they can scavenge particular elements out of mineral soil, particularly phosphorus, although they can also get nitrogen and a lot of the micronutrients that plants need. And they'll, they'll bring that material that they've highly selectively pulled out of, of, of rock fragments of mineral matter in the soil or out of weathering rocks below the soil as well, and they'll bring that into the rhizosphere where it becomes then available to the plants. And the plants essentially pay off with sugars. Um, it's similarly, bacteria in the soil uh, can help um, mineralize or mobilize things like phosphorus that's in the soil. A lot of phosphorus uh, that's loosely in the soil um, oxidizes and becomes very immobile very quickly. But bacteria can actually re process that and, and make it soluble again. And again, effectively, their metabolites can help nourish the plants. How do the plants make sure that there's the right kind and an abundance of those bacteria in the soil? By leaking out the right exudates, by leaking out, by pushing out the right exudates into the soil to essentially feed their microbial allies. It's a very different perspective through which to view the role of soil life as being absolutely critical to the, the growth, say, of, of healthy, nutrient-dense crops um, and supporting the whole world of terrestrial life above ground. Okay, so that's what that's a, that's just a small sliver of what you folks learned when you researched what's happening with in, in the botanical world. And I encourage people to read the book because um, your coverage of these topics is so comprehensive and fascinating. But uh, but we must move on. And so now I would I'd like to talk about human health and what's happening uh, in 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 our bodies with regards to our relationships with microbes. And I thought perhaps uh, I'd start by asking. I guess I'll ask you, Anne. Could you briefly explain the digestive system in terms of? Um, you know, the three major components uh, of the digestive system and, and what happens when we eat? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so most of us um, probably don't give a whole lot of thought about what happens to food after we, you know, chew it up and get all those great tastes and flavors out. And then it goes down the hatch and we're, okay, well, it'll come out the other end some at some point. But there is a huge amount of... Uh, of things that happen between the top and the bottom. So 
the stomach is really uh, a really acidic environment, and it is the acidity of you know somewhere around lemon juice or vinegar, and that will help to break down foods. And so there's nothing really in the way of absorption or um, sort of nutrient getting the nutrients out of the food that goes on in the stomach. It's just sort of the first stop um, on the way to being broken down. Um, And so food moves out of the stomach, and it goes into um, the small intestines. And um, so food drops into the top of the small intestine, and various digestive enzymes shoot into the small intestine at this point from the liver, Um, And so fats and proteins and carbohydrates uh, start getting further broken down here in the small intestine. A simple carbohydrate, say a cookie, a Christmas cookie, say, um, that's got refined sugar in it. It's very uh, short chains of sugars. They call them, you know, one one to two carbons are are in those um, molecules. So it's a small, simple molecule. It's really easy to break down. This is in contrast to, say, a complex carbohydrate, say, you know, something that was in um, a fruit or a vegetable, you know, the skin of an apple or the, the pulp of, um, of a squash or something like that. And they're called complex carbohydrates because they are long, long, long chains of carbon strung together along with side chains of other molecules that might be attached, say, some kind of a fat or some kind of a protein. So... What we talk about in the book is the difference between eating a simple sugar versus a complex sugar. And simple sugar, because it's so quickly broken down, that that nutrient, the sugar, it's absorbed pretty much right away in the small intestine. The complex carbohydrate, though, is not. It still is not really completely broken down. And Hey folks, Jordan cutting in in post-production. I lost a few seconds of tape with Anne. There was some glitch with my recording. But what she's about to say is that when that complex carbohydrate reaches the lower intestine or the colon, we don't actually have the genes that code for the enzymes necessary to completely break down those complex carbohydrates. Okay, so back to Anne. Here we go. But guess who does have the right genes? that can make those enzymes. It's much of our microbiome that lives in the sort of bottommost part of the digestive tract called the colon. And the, the colon is synonymous uh, with large intestine. Um, but we, we just refer to it as the colon. And it's here that microbiome research is, is turning up a whole lot of really, really interesting um, things that go on in the colon your podcast is called The Ruminant, and, and any farmer knows what goes on, um, you know, in a, in a ruminant animal. And it turns out that we don't really have a rumen. Our, the equivalent of what goes on um, in a ruminant happens in our colon. And so that's where all of this bacterial breakdown of plant-based foods occurs. And... Um, so that's sort of the basic walk through the digestive tract. I will um, just go back to the small intestine for a minute to say fats and proteins, because that's also in our food, they are primarily broken down in and absorbed in the small intestine, unless that is you're eating uh, 
quite a bit of fat and quite a bit of protein. Some of that sort of can overwhelm um, the small intestine and it will land in the colon. And what what's turning out to be pretty interesting is that the same microbes that can break down complex carbohydrates, um, they will also break down proteins and fats. But the, the key sort of difference is that the byproducts of, of protein digestion in particular in the colon um, produces some pretty nasty compounds, whereas the byproducts of complex carbohydrates um, in the colon turn out to be some pretty medicinal and beneficial compounds that are called short-chain fatty acids. And um, they are involved in the short-chain fatty acids are involved in all kinds of things, both in the colon itself, and then it's also looking like um, systemically through our bodies. Another highly beneficial compound that is produced in our colon um, is serotonin. And, and serotonin is a neurotransmitter. And it looks like the majority of it is produced not in our brain, which is what was once thought, but the majority is produced in our gut. And then it travels up to our brain. So, you know, there's, if you think about all of these, you know, various um, sayings that say, you know, go with your gut and so on, there's really a lot to that because of uh, all of the things that, that are happening um, to our food as it passes through our digestive tract. So there in sort of a very large nutshell, <laughs> Jordan is is the digestive tract. Well, thank you. And we can't we can't possibly cover. I mean, it's just your your coverage of the, of of what's happening in the body as we eat and, and our relationship with, micro, with microbes is is extensive. We can't possibly cover it. I was really hoping to talk about chronic inflammation because essentially a lot of of this portion of your book is is about the 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 ways in which we through our diets and our behaviors and, and our own medicine, we abuse um, the, the microbes in our body. And, and, and so I think we should zero in on, on inflammation for, for at least a few minutes. If I could ask you to, to talk a little bit about, about what, what chronic inflammation is and what it stems from, and I, and I guess touch on um, the, the very important relationship between microbes and our immune system. So this is really, really quite interesting. Um, people you know, those in the medical field have known about inflammation for a really, really, really long time. And it has always been associated with, um, you know, dealing with some kind of infection. You get the soreness and the redness around, you know, a cut or a wound of some sort, and that's inflammation. What has in recent years become much more appreciated about inflammation is that um, it, it can also occur at a low level, at a level at which a person might not even be aware that they have any inflammation going on in their body at all because there's no apparent symptoms or signs of that. Um, but what it turns out is that these chronic low levels of inflammation, you'd mentioned chronic inflammation, that's just what it is, um, turn out not to be so good for the rest of our body. So how does it happen then that this chronic inflammation um, is plaguing us. And that, that takes going back down um, into that part of our digestive tract that we don't like to talk about, and it's probably the least loved part of our whole digestive tract, and that is the colon. Because as it turns out, 
about 80% of our immune system is wrapped around our digestive tract. And of that, most of it is around the colon. If you picture your colon, your whole digestive tract really is, is really a tube. And if you take a cross section through that, on the outside of the tube, that's where all of this immune tissue and immune cells um, are residing. And they're snugged up right against the colon wall. And your colon wall, get this, you know, this is a, a little frightening to think about, but it's one cell thick, okay? One cell. That's, that's not a lot. You've, and and in, in part, you know, it is that way for a reason because we have all these immune cells on the outside of the wall and they need to know what's going on on the inside of the colon in part because it's a great way for our immune system to detect, say, any, you know, bad microorganisms that have come in through food or water that we might have ingested. But the microbiome research is also telling us that there are our beneficial microbes, our indigenous microbes that live uh, not out sort of in the center of the colon, but very, very close to the colon wall in this thick layer of mucus that, that coats our colon. So you have immune cells that actually can, one in particular called the dendritic cell, it can, it can put sort of an amoeba-like arm in between two colon cells, and it's going on a fishing expedition into the colon to see what's there, both to see if there's anything bad that was in our food or water, but also it's communicating with these indigenous microbes that live in our mucus. And in experiments um, on mice and then indirect evidence in, in people is showing that our immune cells are picking up chemical signals from these indigenous microbes that live in our mucus. And these, these signals are sort of, you might say, you know, they're, they're teaching and toning our immune cell for which kind of microbes are friendly and which kind are dangerous. And this is a whole new way of looking at immunity and looking at the way that our immune system operates. Because there's the standard traditional notion that is true, that is our immune system is on the lookout for pathogens and bad actors, and it's going to find those and kill them, and it does do those things. But this other aspect of the immune system, just as important, is that it be communicating effectively with these indigenous microbes that are in the colonic mucus. And so what you want to have is you want to have the full complement of microbes that live in that mucus because they've got the full complement of all of this chemical signaling, much like what occurs in the rhizosphere of a root, right? You want to have the right kinds and the right combinations because then they're communicating effectively with the immune system. And when they're not, say some microbes are missing, or I talked earlier about a perturbed or altered microbiome, when they're missing, the chemical signals and signaling isn't happening, and the immune system, the human immune system, is designed to take care of us. And I would say, on the whole, if there's any question, you know, in, in the part of our immune system, our immune cells, about whether something is friendly or might be potentially harmful, it's going to err on the side of, hmm, I don't recognize this thing 
it's probably harmful. I'm going to attack it. And so that's what chronic inflammation is. is It's this very low level of sort of disordered communication between our immune system and um, various microbes that, that should be teaching and instructing it. And this isn't to say, and we need to, you know, remind ourselves too, it's not all microbiome um, alterations that are at the root of everything. You know, our bodies and biology are, are very complex. You need to, there's, for certain autoimmune conditions, there's a genetic component. But when you add the genetic component in with the altered microbiome, you know, then that's the recipe that you get. It might not be one or the other. Um, it takes, it, it it, it takes two for some of these things to manifest. So David, as an organic farmer, I spend a lot of time reading about the, the crucial role of organic matter in soil fertility and soil health. But it's, it's really interesting because I find that, that, I mean, I also spend a lot of time looking at, at, at proper soil chemistry and soil physics. And I, I, I think I'm not the only farmer who finds it way easier to, to, um, understand the soil chemistry and soil physics and, and to understand, you know, the effect of this or, or that amendment that I'm putting on my soil. I guess, I guess the way I would put it is I, I almost have to put faith in a lot of the principles I read about um, with regards to, to soil biology, I guess partly because you, you, it's, it's, it's so hard to imagine what's going on beneath the soil in these com- complex relationships. And that's why I took note when in your book, one of you anyway, wrote that along the way, you went from being cynical echo pessimists to cautious echo optimists, and I imagine that took place as you did more and more research. And I'm just wondering, what did you mean by that? Like, how cynical were you when you started out? Um, well, you know, if you look back at the history of how societies have taken care of their land, it's pretty easy to be pretty cynical about our chances this time around in the way that we've been abusing soil globally for a century and a half now. Um, but what really sort of turned me around in terms of thinking about whether we could pull out a um, a real major agricultural reform that could save us from repeating ancient mistakes this time at a global level um, was seeing how fast soil could be restored when you do start paying attention to some of those simple principles. Um, and you can boil them down kind of to the simple principles of, of what's loosely called conservation agriculture in terms of don't disturb the soil surface, don't plow, um, and... Um, bring in uh, um, cover crops that include legumes in a, in a complex rotation as the third uh, principle. And, and those could apply both to organic and more conventional-ish agriculture. Um, but those are ways that, that really seem to foster the beneficial effects of soil life. And you're right that one of the, it, using those principles um, almost involves a leap of faith because you can't see microbial life. It's one of the big problems we've had in, in trying to study it. Um, and understand it is that how do you understand the the interactions of organisms and communities that you can't even see with with the senses that we're born with that you need technology to even be aware of their existence um, and this is one of the big problems that people like Sir Albert Howard one of the pioneers of organic agriculture faced back in the 1930s when he came up with uh, um, you know large-scale composting methods that could work in the tropics that he promoted not disturbing mycorrhizal um, fungi in the soil. It came up with some very basic, some of the very basic ideas and principles that still underlie um, organic agriculture. 
And the scientific community didn't really buy into what he was doing because he didn't really have a mechanism to offer. You know, it was he was basically asking people to take it on faith because he saw these processes work, and so on his farm and on large plantations, and so he developed concepts around why they worked, but he couldn't actually connect the dots in terms of a mechanism. And the essence of it is trying to figure out the mechanisms, but through which how things work. What's this sort of new perspective on microbial life and microbial community ecology has really done um, in a surprising way is offer some of the mechanisms for the processes and connections that people like Sir Albert Howard were arguing for and recognizing back when they didn't have the tools to actually understand how you actually connect the dots. Um, so it's, you know, in terms of our own senses, there is sort of an element of faith that there's uh, one's doing the right thing in terms of that kind of a world. One can run the experiment at a large scale and see whether it actually works. But what, what the modern microbiome science in the plant world is starting to provide is an understanding of really sort of how it works, how those mechanisms connect, that those dots actually really do connect, um, and that there's this other dimension in terms of managing soil to promote fertility and productivity which involves learning about how to actually deal with the, the care and feeding, the stewardship, the cultivation of the beneficial microbes in the soil, which gives us a, a whole different set of tools to think about, different set of principles to, to frame our practices through. Well, folks, it was just such an engrossing read, and I think the best compliment I can pay you is that I haven't been able to eat in the same way since I read it. Uh, and I mean that in a very good way. Um, I have a terrible sweet tooth, but I, I have I have not shown such discipline ever or in years and years um, like I've shown uh, in the last few weeks since I first read the book. And I, I'm really I'm really you've taught me a lot. I'm really optimistic. It's it, I'm now reading. I'm looking for other books to read on this stuff because um you, I, I mean, we talk about a scientific revolution. You have uh, at least started a revolution in my own thinking. And we, we really only scratched the surface today. And I, I just strongly suggest that my listeners check out this book. It was a, it's a very, very good book. And I, I, I just want to thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you much. Appreciate it. Enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, Jordan. And, and um, for you and your listeners, we also have The Hidden Half of Nature also has a website, um, and our website is dig to grow, and that's D I G, and then the number two, and then the word grow, dig to grow.com. And um, we're on Facebook as the hidden half of nature, and we are on Twitter. Uh, our handle is at dig to grow, spelled just like the website. So there's, there's far more there uh, in those places to. Uh, you know, for you or others to follow. In fact, I'll just say here, since you mentioned eating, um, we recently put a new page up on the website called Make the Plate because um, there's the, the one illustration in the book that talks about, you know, well, how do you feed your microbiome? <clears throat> what What does a microbiome-friendly diet look like? So there's there's some pictures on the website for for folks who are more visually oriented and along with, um, you know, kind of recipe-type instructions for how to make those things. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I'll check it out myself, and I, I hope my listeners will do the same. Thanks again, folks. Today I okay. Great, thank you. Thank you, Jordan. So that's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. 
So listen, before I cut out right now, I just want to talk about the new format that we're kind of in the midst of, of unfurling on the Ruminant Podcast. The way it's going to work is, one week, we're going to have a long-form interview, usually on a more broad topic or a bigger idea for, for agriculture, food, farming, that sort of thing. And then the next week, we're going we're gonna to zoom in and focus on a few practical skills for farmers of different disciplines. So it's already technically happened. Last week was kind of the first focus on practical skills this week was uh, a a broader conversation with these two authors and then next week is going to be zooming in again and focusing on some practical skills so i'm really excited for the new format i think you're gonna like it you can always email me editor at theruminant.ca and tell me what you think um but that's that's kind of what's what's to come now i have uh i have talked over vanessa's song a little more than usual and i know a lot of you like it but uh so i'll just take that that chance to remind you that if you go to the ruminant.ca slash podcast you can stream or download a copy of uh, this outro song by my wife vanessa so feel free to go do that and uh have a great week thanks again for all your participation in last week's contest and i'll talk to you soon would we live in a place that don't want us a place that is trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong so we'll run right out into the wilds and braces we'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be